listening to the ACB Advocacy Update. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Pleasure to see all of you uh, virtually, of course. My name is Eric Bridges. I'm the Executive Director of the American Council of the Blind, and I am so excited that we are doing a live stream today to talk about the 2021 DC Leadership Conference, which is going to be held February 21st, 22nd, and 23rd virtually this year for the first time ever. I've got some fun guests with me today, fellow troublemakers. And why don't we go through and just briefly introduce everybody, and then we'll we'll talk about the the conference itself and the, and the meetings and some of the presentations. So happy today to have ACB President Dan Spoon with us. Good afternoon, Dan. Good afternoon, Eric. Happy to be here. Yeah. Our Director of Development, Tony Stevens. Tony? And that's a capital T, which also goes with Tony. So, In, Indeed, sir. Greetings. <laughs> yes. The, the A in your email trips a lot of people up. Anyway. Does, yes. yeah. <laughs> so I was going back to the troublemaker. Sorry. Oh, gotcha. <laughs> a little 76 trombones reference. Continue though, sir, please. <laughs> awesome. And uh, the, the voice that you hear giggling in the background is our membership services coordinator, the great Cindy Hollis. Hey, how's it going? Glad everybody's here. Fun. This is a crazy group. Can you tell? Oh, yeah. <laughs> We're full blown. Up. Anyway. <laughs> um, it's only Tuesday. Loving every minute of it. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then last but certainly not least, our Director of Advocacy and Governmental Affairs, Clark Rackfall. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us today. All right. So with that, as I said, uh, the DC Leadership Conference really composes two meetings. One is our Affiliate Presidents Meeting, which is going to be taking place on February 21st, that's Sunday. And then the 22nd and 23rd is Clark's big shindig, which is our legislative seminar. So encourage everybody to register. The link to register is going to be in the comments. We are experimenting today with something called a multi-stream aggregator, which is a really big term uh, for live streaming on multiple platforms. So hello, YouTube. Hello, Facebook Live on our ACB page, as well as hello, ACB community. We are streaming live in the community group this afternoon. So This is the first time we've ever uh, played around with this. We're hoping that everything goes well and that we will continue to utilize this for uh, live streaming events throughout the course of 2021. So again, welcome everybody. And it's my pleasure to hand it off to to Dan Spoon to talk a little bit about the Affiliate Presidents meeting. Uh, Thank you, Eric. Uh, Boy, what an exciting uh, extended weekend we're going to have for everybody the, uh, the last week in February. And For those of you who are thinking about it, make that big plunge and register for our uh, DC Leadership Conference. As Eric said, this year it's virtual, and uh, for a small fee of $20, you can participate in all the activities, Uh, you know, get your Zoom invites, uh, ask your questions, and just be an active member uh, of American Council of the Blind. So looking forward to having everybody uh, join us. Uh, the president's uh, meeting will be on Sunday, as Eric said, from 10 to about 6 o'clock, 5.30, 6 o'clock. Uh, we're going to have a combination of general sessions and breakout sessions. Uh, we're going to uh, uh, 
you know, do a special thing this year and, and dedicate our DC leadership conference to Charlie Crawford, who was uh, our second executive director with ACB. Charlie passed away this year. And uh, we just felt it was very appropriate uh, to recognize Charlie for all of his contributions to ACB and our community. Great individual advocate, affiliate president, as well as executive director. So absolutely. Just an absolutely fantastic guy. And, uh, and I'm going to, you know, turn it over to uh, Cindy and Tony. I'll let first Cindy talk first and tell us a little bit more about the activities that she's going to be sponsoring during the president's meeting. Well, I get to take part in a couple of things, and uh, it's going to be, this is worth your $20, guys. So if you're sitting on the fence and wondering if you should be coming, yeah, you should. Uh, It's like almost like a mini convention. And so anyway, we're going to, we're, the breakout session I'm going to be working on with in the morning will be around membership and membership certification, that process, getting some feedback from presidents. What are we doing right? What can we be doing better? You know, it's really important. We want to work with all of our affiliates and make this process as positive one as possible. And certainly we want to make sure, most importantly, that every member is counted. Every person that joins our affiliates and wants to be a part of ACB, we we know that they are and that they get to take advantage of all that ACB has to offer. So that's the breakout. And then during general sessions, we'll be talking about one of my favorite topics, and that is, of course, our community events. And so um, we'll also be talking about how can affiliates take advantage of community events more in in line with their affiliates to boost uh, membership uh, and really be a membership tool. So uh, I really look forward to having that opportunity. And then more importantly, actually, um, so real quick, could you yeah. just maybe give a, a quick thumbnail of what community events are? Um, sure. Just for folks that, that may not be as familiar. Yeah, um, of course. Exploded over the last year. It, it has. So we started in March of last year with two calls in one week. We now do somewhere between 75 and 80 each week. These are events that are brought to us, some by our affiliates, some by ACB committees, but most by members and non-members uh, and some from industry and just it's different topics, some are discussions, presentations, there's peer support, health and wellness, uh, and crafts, and just, I mean, if people want to get involved and be busy and do things, there's something for everyone. Um, In fact, next week, we even have somebody starting up guitar lessons. So just really excited about all that's being brought to the community, and we don't check ID at the door. Everyone is welcome. So we know people are taking advantage of these events, whether they're members of ACB or not. And we just appreciate it so much. And our uh, tagline is that our calls should be safe, respectful, and welcoming. And if they are not that, uh, we want to hear about it. So that is the goal. We've been striving for that since day one, and that will be ongoing 
And, and so, uh, Cindy, how can folks uh, subscribe? If, uh, sure. Schedule if they're not already. If you're of- not already subscribed to our daily schedule, so I, I send out an email each morning. Thank you for the prompts, Eric. I appreciate it. <laughs> you know, sometimes you think everybody knows everything, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, anyway, uh, you can get an email in your inbox each morning with that day's schedule. And you can send an email to ACB hyphen or dash community dash events plus the plus sign subscribe at ACB lists with an S at the end, acblists.org. And if you don't remember that, you can also just drop me an email at community at acb.org, and I'd be happy to subscribe you because I know now how to do that again. (laughs) So um, uh, we would love to have you join our email list, and I send out the weekly schedule over the weekend for that next Sunday through Saturday, and then each day I send out a daily schedule because it changes. Sometimes we get additions, sometimes uh, cancellations, you know, maybe a Zoom info needs to be changed. But anyway, we'd love to welcome you into our community. And at these leadership, uh, this leadership weekend, we will be doing some community activities outside of the formalized events. So we um, will definitely be extending the time together for those who want to do that. So look forward to it. And Cindy, thank you for that. This is Dan again, and I had an opportunity to participate in the coffee social this morning with breakout sessions, and it's really an opportunity to just sit down with four or five people and get to know them better, and it's uh, it's just amazing, all the different activities going on there. Yeah. And so with our president's meeting, we're going to start the general session with really a, a look at diversity and inclusion hosted by our Multicultural Affairs Committee, chaired by uh, Peggy Garrett. And then we're going to have a keynote speaker uh, in the mid-afternoon time frame. And then Tony's kind of our lead person in the afternoon, our uh, de- communications and development director. So Tony, what have you got on tap uh, after our keynote speaker in the afternoon? Hi, Dan. And hi, everybody. Yeah, we're real excited about being able to provide some very engaging and interactive programming this year. That's going to be both informative and I think of real value in trying to build up capacities for so many of our affiliates and anybody that's interested in sort of nonprofit development and marketing and communications. We'll be having a one-on-one sit down with sort of my mentor and Yoda. I like to think of him as fundraising, uh, William Reeder, who's a, who's a very well-established fundraiser in, in the Washington, D.C. area and uh, has been very helpful towards us. So we're going to enjoy sort of having our own virtual fireside chat to talk about ways that as, as small nonprofits and small affiliates and membership organizations, how we can think about ways to engage and foster stewardship and really to have people walk along with us as we work towards bringing them into our family and allowing them to be a part of the organization through whatever ways they can give support. If it's volunteer or if it's revenue and monetary support, all are welcome in a sense of, of really helping to sustain the mission of what we do. Another part of the afternoon is really going to be spent on communications. We at ACB on the national level have undergone a lot of work the past year, working toward building up and bolstering our communications on the back end. Now, what that means is we've gone through a strategic communications plan and really worked out a series of metrics and strategies and tactics to really help us grow. But we know that we are part 
of a large body of organizations, a very organic organism of people and affiliates and advocates around the country. So what we want to do is to be able to empower our affiliates and our leaders around the country in ways that they can really take from the conference skills that are very useful and helpful in building a narrative, bearing a, building a message that really helps create an echo chamber. If it's advocacy in the days that will follow with the work Clark will be doing with the legislative seminar, or if it's, again, just doing basic promotion and outreach in your community and really trying to make sure that your message is in harmony with what we're saying on a national level so that we're all sort of marching to the same beat of the same drummer. Well, then our hope is that afternoon, the engaging programs that we'll be having uh, with our consultants that we've been working with and other folks uh, will be of great value in really helping to bolster your own activities through marketing and communication strategies that you can take back to your affiliate. You can work towards identifying and cultivating people in your community and in your organization who can really stand up to be outstanding messengers or even you yourself and to find ways to help really drive forward the mission of the organization. So we're excited in that afternoon to really be giving you a, a series of programming and events that will hopefully be very educational and very informative and really great at capacity building in your own organization. Right on. A Jedi you are not. A Jedi one day you will be. <laughs> <laughs> I saw that over the weekend. I love that line. That anyway. Out, outstanding. Uh, Dan, anything else uh, regarding the, the president's meeting? No, I think we pretty well covered it. Again, 10 to 6 o'clock on Sunday uh, February 21st. And of course, that leads in then to our exciting two-day legislative seminar. So, Yeah, Clark, take it away. Absolutely. Thanks, Eric and Dan, for that segue. So the ACB Legislative Seminar here in 2021 will be a virtual affair. And even though that means we won't get in-person FaceTime with our members of Congress and their staff, it does provide us more opportunities to connect. More folks can be involved in these virtual meetings, working with their state affiliates. And it gives us the flexibility because no one has to hustle out of the hotel and off of Capitol Hill to catch their flights home, that we have the ability to spread the content, more content, more love over two days instead of one. And our there you go. Exactly. And then as a result, the Hill meetings don't all have to take place over a single day. We can be more flexible, keeping with the ACB core values and <laughs> spread those out over the remainder of the week. So what is our legislative seminar going to look like here in, in 2021? Well, it'll be Monday, February 22nd and Tuesday, February 23rd, beginning at noon each day. The Full agenda will be forthcoming uh, over our email lists, on our website, and all other places where you can find ACB content. Uh, but we're looking at tracks of programming. So we will have information and sessions on voting. Who doesn't love voting? Well, it turns out all ACB affiliates love voting, and that's why everyone puts so much heart and time and passion into expanding voting access this past year. So we'll have uh, some speakers from the federal government as well as uh, the states to hear how they expanded accessible voting and what more work still needs to be done. We'll have a track in conjunction with ACB's Transportation and Environmental Access Committees featuring presenters from the U.S. Department of Transportation as well as our industry partners on autonomous vehicles as well as traveling by air with service animals. There's been a little bit in the news about that recently. 
don't know if you all have seen it. Heard a little bit about it, yeah. Uh, there are also other tracks featuring health and wellness as part of ACB's broad Get Up and Get Moving campaign here in 2021. Digital access and inclusion, which we know has been pivotal during the pandemic to maintain uh, our standing in the classroom as well as in the remote work environment. Uh, and also to entertainment, giving folks something to do. And you know, if we didn't have accessible media and communications, how would we all take part in the ACB community events? Yes. <laughs> Most definitely. Finally, uh, you know, core to folks living, uh, you know, happy, independent lives as members of the community. We'll have a track focused on education, rehabit- rehabilitation, and employment. So please join us. We'll also have general sessions with uh, guest speakers, kind of bookending each day, as well as providing a political outlook on the new administration in the 117th Congress. Tony and Eric, you all have got to do this in previous years, but I'm really excited because how often do we get to kind of launch in with a clean slate? a new administration in the White House and a newly elected Congress? Uh, the correct answer is, is approximately once every four years. Yeah. So, <laughs> I'm excited to, to take on that challenge with ACB and our members. Um, and Dan, of course, we'll have more information between now and the legislative seminar uh, on how to schedule those Hill meetings and what to expect when meeting with your members of Congress in a virtual environment. That's right, Clark. We're going to, you know, the the theme for this year's convention is fostering voice, choice, and community uh, at the 2021 ACB-DC Leadership Conference. Again, dedicated to Charlie Crawford. We're going to have community events. We've already had one really good uh, advocacy community event that was hosted by the Florida Council of the Blind and put together by Debbie Grubb. Uh, It's now a podcast, and I encourage everybody to take an opportunity to download it and listen. But in addition to that, we'll have more community events leading up to the D.C. Leadership Conference, as well as what Cindy and Clark were saying. There's going to be uh, community events surrounding the actual programming each day. And I think then that'll be followed up by three exciting days of Zoom advocacy, reaching out to your representatives and senators. I really think this is an opportunity for us to get so many more people involved in the process. I love to throw those goals out there. And so I would like to see us have 500 people register for our D.C. Leadership Conference. We're well on our way. We're almost at our first hundred and we've still got almost four four weeks to go. So really look forward to everybody getting out there and participating. This is your chance uh, to make a difference in the lives of our blind and visually impaired community. Hey, Dan. Hey, I think I think some people are asking. So is it two different prices for the president's no. one in leadership no, or it's, legislative? I feel like I'm on a whammo no. commercial. Right? No, it's yeah. one low price. In you get it all. You get it all. You get the president's meeting and the le- two-day legislative seminar and that the is ability amazing. to reach out and advocate with your local representative. So it's all for one low price of $20. And another question that's been asked in the community is can anybody attend the president's meetings 
most certainly they are wide open to everyone who would like to attend. You don't have to be a president. You don't have to be an affiliate officer or board member. Everyone is invited. You don't even have to be a member of ACB. If you'd just like to, to tune in and learn more about our organization, you are welcome. We have a ton of exciting things that are going on inside the organization. And a lot of it has been generated by, uh, by the community uh, over the last year. Uh, There are some really cool things that we're doing within leadership to to work with state and special interest affiliates. And then obviously the policy side, uh, having a a new presidential administration, as well as new Congress coming in, there's, there's a lot of energy and a lot of, a lot of possibility. And so really want folks to, to strongly consider registering and attending. All of it is going to be done utilizing zoom again, just like our convention last year. Uh, we're going to be live streaming uh, the general sessions. Uh, so we'll be, be utilizing uh, YouTube and, and potentially uh, multiple streams again. So there, there will be multiple ways for, for, for folks to, to, to get in and participate and engage, which I'm, I'm really looking forward to. And uh, thanks so much guys for, for, for joining us today. Uh, as always, if you have advocacy challenges or issues that you want to raise with us, please feel free to send an email to advocacy at acb.org. Please feel free to to get on uh, the interwebs and learn more about us at acb.org. And uh, as is always, keep advocating. Take care and have a great day, everybody. In part two of the podcast, we'll go back to November 2020, where Claire and Clark talk with Rachel Weisberg about the ADA and accessibility to digital content. Today, we're going to be talking all about digital accessibility, uh, which I personally think is great because technology is everywhere. It surrounds us. We interact with it work with work with play with school with everything you can imagine. We are joined by Rachel Weisberg. Did I get that right, Rachel? You did, Rachel Weisberg, yep. Awesome. Um, To talk to us, uh, Rachel comes to us from one of the protection and advocacy offices out of the state of Illinois. Um, So without further ado, Rachel, do you want to introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. Hi. I'm so happy to be here and to be chatting with everyone. So as Claire mentioned, I work at an organization called Equip for Equality. We are one of the nation's protection and advocacy agencies. Um, every state across the country has one of us, has something called a PNA. Um, we are the one for the state of Illinois, but you may be familiar with the one by you. Um, often we're called things like disability rights and then the name of your state. So if you're in California, it's disability rights, California. If you're in Texas, it's disability rights, Texas. Um, but we're a national network of disability rights organizations all throughout the country. And we're under this umbrella called the National Disability Rights Network or the NDRN. So if you're not familiar with your local chapter, you can go to NDRN's website and you can, you'll be able to find the organization that's part of, of your state. What is the ADA all about as it pertains to digital accessibility? You know, I think back, um, the ADA was passed in 1990, so technology was definitely around, but it obviously looked different than it does now in 2020. Um, so how does the ADA um, 
how does it interplay with digital accessibility? Let me start with titles two and title three. And those might be phrases that uh, many of you have heard before. But title two is the part of the ADA that applies to state and local governments. Um, we also sometimes call them public entities, but um, any state or local government is subject to Title II of the ADA. And Title II says that all programs, services, and activities of a state and local government need to be um, accessible and, and there's non-discrimination requirements. And part of that is when we look at the ADA, um, as many of you know, in addition to having non-discrimination requirements, the law goes kind of one step further and says sometimes we need to provide more affirmative or more proactive requirements to make sure that we're ensuring accessibility or non-discrimination. So the way that that looks in, some, in, in part of Title II is that there's a specific part of the law that says public entities need to provide, and this I'm going to throw some legal terms at you, need to provide auxiliary aids and services when necessary to ensure effective communication. So what is that? Term, I like it. <laughs> <laughs> I know I had to throw in my legal my legal jargon. Um, but what does that mean? It basically means when we're when we're communicating something, regardless of how we communicate it, we need to communicate it using the communication tools for the blind community, the deaf community, any community that needs this information, it done in a slightly different way. So that's a really long-standing principle, right? That's the reason that we have American Sign Language interpreters for people who are deaf. That's the reason that we need to provide Braille or audio tapes for, for people who are blind. But that same concept means that we need to make sure that any information that's being communicated in a digital format, whether that's on a website or otherwise, has to be accessible. So it's basically, when we talk about digital accessibility in the world of state and local governments, it's through this effective communication kind of framework. So that's Title II. Let's talk a little bit about Title III. And this is a big area that I'm sure we're going to spend a lot of time today talking about. But Title III applies to what's called places of public accommodation. So that's kind of our legal jargon for any sort of private business, not-for-profit, um, you know, com commercial facility, places that are open to the general public um, that are private. So they're not run by a government, they're run by private entities. And there we look at digital access kind of through the same lens. We, under Title III, also need to ensure that we're providing auxiliary aids and services necessary to ensure effective communication. So when we have a Title III entity and they're providing information digitally through websites, through anything else, we need to make sure that that is being provided in an effective, um, in, a, in a way that ensures effective communication. Um, so the ADA, I think most of the time when we talk about digital access, we're talking about Title II and Title III entities. Um, and I don't want to get too much into it. Maybe we can talk about it a little bit later. But it's also really important to remember that under Title I of the ADA, um, there are protections for employees with disabilities and applicants with disabilities. And the law is set up a little bit differently, but we need to make sure that we're ensuring accessible um, digital communications for applicants and employees as well, but that's all considered under Title I of the ADA. So how confusing was that? Do we need to clarify anything with the outline of the ADA? No, let's, that's perfect. Let's dig deeper a little bit. I agree. Title I is super, super important, but maybe we can 
go to that second. Going back to Titles 2 and Titles 3, um, when we're talking about auxiliary aids and services, you gave great examples of kind of the the typical ones we would think of that are more, I'll call them old school, as far as, you know, Braille and things like that. But what might they look like in the digital world? You know, we, we obviously live in an era where we do everything via email or 20 different apps on our phones. Um, so what might um, auxiliary aids and services in the digital world look like? Sure. And that's just ensuring that the information that's provided and in a digital format is accessible. So we can kind of dive into what that means and how to make this digital content accessible for people. I think in particularly people who use screen reading software or other sorts of assistive technology. Um, but there are specific ways that a website or other sorts of digital platforms can be formatted so that they're usable and readable and accessible to people using assistive technology. And Rachel, talking about those website standards or guidelines, I think many of our listeners are familiar with um, the Web Content Accessibility Guidelines, or WCAG, from the World Wide Web Consortium. Um, What sort of legal standing do the WCAG or WCAG guidelines have when it comes to making accessible and usable uh, websites? So that's a great, that's a great question. So um, when we look at, let's say that, let's take a step back and look at um, kind of a more traditional um, definition of accessibility. So when we look at um, ensuring that a building is physically accessible, and we have questions about what does that mean? How do we make that building accessible? You know, what, um, how do we ensure that there's no protruding objects or that doors are wide enough or all of the different things we need to figure out? One way we do that is by looking at the Department of Justice's regulations that are promulgated um, after the U.S. Access Board comes up with these standards. And that's essentially how we define accessibility. Now, when we look at the digital space, we don't have regulations helping us understand what it means to be accessible. Um, There's a long history of this. Um, The the Department of Justice, all the way back in 2010, initiated its rulemaking process saying, you know, we are interested in figuring out how to define accessibility. In 2010, under the Obama administration, the Department of Justice published what's called an advanced notice of proposed rulemaking, essentially declaring that they wanted to move forward with the rulemaking process. Um, But unfortunately, after that, there were a lot of different delays Fast forward to 2014, 2015, there were some additional plans to publish the notice of proposed rulemaking. Again, there were additional delays. Fast forward to 2017, those rules were placed in an inactive status. And then in 2017, under the Trump administration, those rules were withdrawn. So as a practical matter, what that means for all of us is that there are no regulations now from the Department of Justice, and there aren't going to be in the very near future. So what do we do when we don't have regulations? Does that mean we just throw up our hands and say, well, there's no regulations, we can't apply the law? No, we don't do that. And actually there's been courts that say we don't do that and we can dive into some of those cases. The Department of Justice themselves has said we don't do that. But what do we do? We need something, right? And so we look to more of these voluntary industry standards. And so the WCAG reference that you made is exactly what everyone has been looking to. Um, 
So what we're seeing in a lot of settlement agreements and in some court decisions is because we don't have these DOJ standards, um, when we're trying to define what does it mean to be accessible, what does a business need to do, how do we comply, as a practical matter, folks have been turning to WCAG. Um, for some time, we were looking at WCAG 2.0 level AA. Um, recently, the, the consortium has updated those standards, and so now we're at level 2.1. And what we've seen in the last year or so is that more settlement agreements are using that as the standard to help us understand what accessibility means. Mm -hmm. um, what I what I maybe this is a good time to dive into one case if that's if that's okay and that's the Robles case. Um, yeah, please. Is this a good time for that? Please, yeah. Okay, so the Robles case is a really interesting case. It's a case called Robles versus Domino's Pizza, and it's a case out of California. Now, this case in some ways looks very similar to a lot of these other digital access website cases that we see across the country. The case was brought by a blind plaintiff, Mr. Robles. He um, was attempting to access um, Domino's Pizza's website and mobile app. He used JAW software, um, as I'm sure many listening do. He also used the iPhone voiceover program, which I'm sure many people do. But he wasn't able, using JAW software and using the voiceover, to access Domino's website and mobile app because it wasn't programmed in a way that was accessible. So he filed a lawsuit under Title III of the ADA. And again, remember, it's Title III because Domino's is a private business. And he also filed under some state laws. Now, what happened is that Domino's filed what's called a motion to dismiss. And what that means is they said, you know, we should not even look at this case. We shouldn't litigate it. We shouldn't do discovery. This case should go away right away because Mr. Robles has no legal right to proceed. Um, and what Domino's argued was that was that his lawsuit violated what's called due process principles. Basically, what Domino's argued was that because the Department of Justice does not have regulations about website accessibility, it would be unfair to hold Domino's liable because they don't even know what it means to be accessible. They don't know what accessibility means. And so it would violate their the Domino's due process rights. Um, well, I will tell you that that is an argument that had been raised in a handful of other cases across the country, and no other court bought it. But what happened in this case is that the court agreed, and the court said, you're right, we do think that this violates their due process rights. And so they dismissed the case, and they even had this language that the court concludes that by calling on Congress, the Attorney General, and the Department of Justice to take action, to set minimum web accessibility standards for the benefit of the disabled community, those subject to Title III and the judiciary. Now, that was a huge shock to, I think, everyone who was working on these types of cases. So that wasn't the end of the story. Um, and the reason why is that that was a decision at the district court level or the trial court level. But if you're a plaintiff and you don't like a decision at the district court or trial court level, you have the right to file an appeal. And that's exactly what Mr. Robles did. So he filed an appeal to the Ninth Circuit, and that's the circuit that's out on the West Coast, um, which was the relevant circuit because Mr. Robles, of course, was from in California. So when they when when um, Mr. Robles filed an appeal 
uh, to, the, to the Ninth Circuit, this is an opportunity where a lot of different advocacy organizations can file what's called an amicus brief. And they, it's called a friend of the court brief where they tell the court what they think. And as you can imagine, there were so many amicus briefs filed on all sides of this, including a ton from various disability rights groups, including the ACB um, and the NDRN, which is again, the parent organization of my, of my organization. So what's really interesting is that while this case was pending before the Ninth Circuit, um, there was a letter that the Department of Justice published. So what happened was a group of legislators from Congress came together and they wrote a letter to the Attorney General and they urged the Department of Justice to state publicly that private legal action under the ADA about websites is unfair and violates basic due process principles because there was no clear rule about what final or what website accessibility meant. And I think that this group of, of, of Congress people really thought that they were going to get a positive, you know, kind of comment from the Department of Justice, um, which, you know, is fairly pro-business at this time. And what was really surprising is that the Department of Justice then responded in a letter in September of 2018. And this letter, they said that they said it was, they basically had an unequivocal response stating that the ADA does in fact apply to websites. Um, and the Department of Justice said that they first articulated its interpretation that the ADA applies to websites, public accommodations websites over 20 years ago, and that the absence of a specific regulation does not mean that there's no, um, that, that, that the absence of a specific regulation does not serve as a basis of non-compliance with the statute's requirements. And so powerful. really, really, really powerful stuff. Absolutely. Um, and the DOJ also said, look, you know, this is a private business. It's a public accommodation. They have some flexibility about how to comply with these regulations, but they can't just, again, throw up their hands and say, well, we have no regulations. There's nothing that we can do. So, you know, that kind of set the stage for this argument at the Ninth Circuit, which for legal, uh, I don't know if nerds is the right word, but this is the, <laughs> the argument before the Ninth Circuit was one of the most interesting ones that I've that I've heard. It was when you have an argument before an appellate court, you have three different judges and they're all um, the lawyer goes up and presents their argument and they're just constantly being interrupted and questions are asked. Um, and the lawyer for Mr. Robles um, spoke and they also, the um, NFB also had a lawyer and she was able to explain a lot of the history. Um, it was really, really interesting. And ultimately the Ninth Circuit issued a decision that was favorable to Mr. Robles, reversing and remanding that decision and had a whole bunch of really um, important holdings. But I guess to, to this point about the due process, the court, essentially said that that district court argument was ridiculous. They said, if you look at the ADA, you know, it's not vague. The Department of Justice has been clear on its position for over 20 years that the ADA applies. And, you know, the plaintiff in this case wasn't asking Domino's to necessarily comply with WCAG, 
but it does say WCAG is a possible remedy. Um, and so that kind of left open the possibility that, look, if there are other website accessibility standards out there and they serve the purpose of ensuring accessibility, then it's not that a business has to comply with WCAG, but they have to make sure that their websites are accessible. And right now, as a practical matter, WCAG really is the only game in town when we look at what does it mean to be accessible. So that was a very, very long answer to your question, um, but I think a really interesting case that is helpful to help us get some context about where we're at in terms of, you know, the legal standards um, and whether WCAG is the is kind of the, the the way to go. Oh, and I'll just I'll just throw in one other thing is that for some time there was also a lot of organizations out there that were looking at Section 508, which is another law that we can talk about, um, but recently. Section 508 has been, they called it a Section 08 refresh, and it has essentially adopted WCAG 2.0 level AA. And so even for those organizations that are looking at WCAG, or I'm sorry, looking at Section 508, they really are looking at WCAG just like, um, just like everyone else is. I guess before we jump into the Section 508 of the Rehabilitation Act, um, just to finish up on Robles v. Dominoes, and Guillermo Robles is a member of the California Council of the Blind, um, our California state affiliate, much like Mr. Robles was able to appeal the um, the lower court decision, was there an appeal filed after the Ninth Circuit's decision? in the Robles v. Domino's yes, case? Yes, and I'm, I'm so glad you that you asked. So, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> There's so much we could say about this. It's hard to know, it's hard to know when to stop. Um, but, yeah, so after the Domino's decision in the Ninth Circuit, um, so Domino's at this point wasn't happy, just in the same way that Mr. Robles wasn't happy at the, at the early stages. And so what when you don't like a decision at the district court level, um, you have um, essential right to appeal to an appellate court judge. That's something that no one really can grant or take away. You have the right to, to do that appeal. Once an appellate court has issued a decision, the next level of appeal is usually going to the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, as you can imagine, many, many, many people want to go to the U.S. Supreme Court, and that's not something that you can do as a matter of right. Instead, the way it works is that a party who doesn't like the decision can file what's called a petition for search or certiorari, where they ask the U.S. Supreme Court to hear the case. Um, now, there was a lot of fear in the disability community about what would happen if this case went up to the Supreme Court. And... Um, so Domino's did seek a petition for cert, um, and it ultimately was denied. So the Supreme Court said, we do, we're not going to listen to this case. We're not going to hear this case. And so what that means is that the Ninth Circuit decision remains good law. Um, and so it's possible that at some point in, the, in our future, we will have a case about digital accessibility that makes it all the way to the Supreme Court, but it's not going to be this one because the Supreme Court has, de has denied cert in this case. The Ninth Circuit is only one circuit. And so this is the standing right now as far as the Ninth Circuit is um, concerned. But we have several other circuits throughout the U.S. Can you talk about some of the decisions that have been applied in different circuits and how they might compare and contrast as far as digital accessibility goes? I know it's not a uniform um, application thus far, and so it does make it a little murky as far as it goes um, throughout the country. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I will say about that particular issue, about the issue of due process and whether or not, you know, an entity has to ensure digital accessibility even without regulations. Um, that Ninth Circuit case, at, once we were at the district court level, was a bit of an outlier. So if you looked at all of the other cases across the country, there really weren't any other cases saying that an entity did not have to provide digital accessibility um, just because there were no regulations. And so even though that decision was in the Ninth Circuit and only is precedential, meaning it only has to be followed by lower courts in the Ninth Circuit, um, there's really nothing that's that states the contrary outside of the Ninth Circuit. So I'm pretty confident saying that I think that's pretty much the law um, across the country that, um, you know, that these entities need to provide digital access, even though we don't have regulations. Um, but you're absolutely right. One of the big legal issues of our time is an issue that there is a bit of a differential in the different circuits. Um, and that question is whether websites and public accommodations are even covered by Title III of the ADA. Um, I want to do a quick differential in that, you know, we talked about this difference of Title II and Title III. There really is no question at all about whether a state and local government needs to make their websites accessible. Because when you look at the requirement that state and local governments provide programs, services, and activities in an accessible way, and that phrase, program services and activities have been really broadly applied. Courts, tons of courts across the country have said that really applies to everything a state and local government entity does. So I have not seen any courts saying a public um, entity, a state or local government does not need to make their website accessible. So just kind of putting that aside. So this conversation that we're going to talk about is really focused exclusively on Title III, these private entities. Um, and so a little bit of the background is that when you look at the text of the ADA, you don't see the word website, right? And you don't see the word internet. Um, you, again, have these general requirements that we're ensuring effective communication, we're providing auxiliary aids and services, but we don't see the word website or internet or digital access. So is that surprising? No, right? I mean, the web, the ADA, of course, was passed in 1990, and the the world as we know it is a much, much different place. But what's <laughs> happened because of that is that there's some question about whether Title III of the ADA even applies to um, whether whether web, uh, whether um, requirements for websites even are applied to Title III of the ADA or whether the ADA even applies to website accessibility. I'm kind of saying it a lot of different ways, this, meaning the same thing. And the reason why is that the reason why is that when you look at what is covered by Title III of the ADA, it has to be a place of public accommodation. So what do you think about when you think of the word place? Well, arguably, you could think of a typical brick and mortar structure, right? A physical place. Um, and the way that Title III is defined is by a list of different categories 
Um, and each of these categories has a number of different examples. So, and a lot of them are physical spaces. So just to give an example, one example of one of these categories says that, um, you know, a place of public accommodation is a motion picture house, theater, concert hall, stadium, or other place of ex exhibition or entertainment. So again, it's kind of conjuring up this image of physical spaces. And so there has been some question of if Title III applies to places, what does that mean for something where there is no physical space? It only, you know, it's we're, we're talking about a digital structure. We're talking about something that appears online. What does that mean? So, again, the Department of Justice has had a longstanding position that the ADA is going to apply. It doesn't matter as long as the content of what's being discussed is one of these 12 categories. It doesn't matter if it's part of this physical space or not. However, the courts have had differing opinions. And Claire, as you said, um, there are differences depending on where the decisions are, because there are these different circuits across the country. So, um, let me go over a couple of the different, more pervasive legal theories. One legal theory, and this is a theory that's out of the First Circuit, which is out east. It's also the theory in the Seventh Circuit, which is where I am in Illinois. And that is that a website can be a place of public accommodation, even without a physical structure, so long as the services being provided otherwise fit into the definition of public accommodation. So I would call this like the most liberal, the most expansive interpretation of Title III. Um, and I'll give you an example of this type of case. Um, and this is actually one of the very first cases about website accessibility was a case brought against Netflix. It was brought by the National Association of the Deaf and it was brought in Massachusetts in 2012. And what happened in this case is that Netflix, which we all know and love, was starting to stream content called Watch Instantly. I think it was like at the beginning of the streaming world before it's pretty much all we all do now. Um, but unfortunately for the deaf community, none of this content had closed captions. So Netflix brought a lawsuit under Title III of the ADA saying this is a violation of the ADA's effective communication requirements. Well, Netflix filed a motion to dismiss, just like we talked about earlier in the Domino's case. And Netflix said, we don't have a physical space, right? We, you don't walk into Netflix. You don't drive up to Netflix. Netflix does not have a brick and mortar establishment. We exist only on the internet, only in this digital space. So we are not covered by the ADA. Well, the court disagreed because, again, they use this broad expansion of what place of public accommodations really mean. And the court said places of public accommodation are not limited to actual physical structures. And Netflix falls within at least one, if not more, of the enumerated ADA categories. And so they said, look, that Netflix could be a place of entertainment, right? It's entertaining us. It could be a rental establishment. It could be a service establishment. All of these things could make it a place of public accommodation, even though it doesn't have a physical structure. So that's the group that I would say is kind of the most expansive, the most um, liberal definition of public accommodation. Um, any questions about that? And then, otherwise, we'll dive into the next in the next kind of category. So we like the first and seventh circuit. Awesome. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. Good. That's the take home point. That's the synopsis. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, okay, so then the next grouping I call kind of the intermediary grouping, and this is kind of a weird one. So there's a group of courts out there that say that websites can be places of public accommodation if there's a nexus to an actual physical place of public accommodation. Okay, so what does that mean? That means, actually, the Mr. Robles' case is a great example of that. So Domino's Pizza undisputably is a traditional place of public accommodation, right? We can go in, buy our pizza, sit down, order our toppings, whatever we want to do. Well, if you go on Domino's website, you could order your pizza. Um, and so you could go on their website, you could select the toppings, you could basically do something that's going to create a gateway or a nexus to this physical place of public accommodation. And so this group of logic is that as long as there's some sort of connection between this website and the physical place of public accommodation, then the ADA is going to apply. And there's lots of different circuits um, and courts that that use that framework. Um, and I'll give you one example. In addition to Mr. Robles's case, there's a case called Gomez versus General Nutrition Corporation. And this was a case brought in Florida in 2018. And this um, and, and there the plaintiff argued that there was a nexus to the physical store because if you went on GNC's website, you could purchase products, you could learn about the sales, you could find the stores, you could also buy products remotely. And so as long as, again, there was some sort of connection between the website and the physical place, you're good to go. You have the nexus. Make sense or at least quasi makes sense? Any questions about that one? Sounds good. Okay. So, Rachel, what if there was a, a situation kind of in that nexus, but a private entity offered a, a sale or a coupon online, but not necessarily in store, or you had to um, activate it online versus just going into the physical store? Definitely a nexus. I'd say that is definitely a nexus. As long as there's some connection between what you can do online and what you can do in the store, I think you, I think you're there. Are there other examples of different uh, various opinions in other circuits? Yeah, there sure are. So there's one final, um, well, kind of two final examples. Um, the last example, um, Actually, I'm sorry, just one final example. And I guess let me just say that the nexus issue um, is one that is, I think it's it's okay when you have a private business that also has a physical brick and mortar location, but it's really problematic when we look at a um, a company that exists only online. So I was going to say, we live in an era now where things are going more and more online only. Absolutely, exactly. And that's really problematic because like, let me just give you an example. So, you know, we just talked about this Netflix case out in Massachusetts where um, the court found that Nexus, that, that the ADA applied to Netflix, even though it didn't have a, you know, a brick and mortar establishment. Well, what's fascinating is that California is one of the jurisdictions that has this Nexus requirement. Um, just months after the National Association of the Deaf brought a lawsuit, there was another plaintiff who brought a lawsuit against Netflix. And 
I'm not kidding you when I say it was almost exactly the same facts. It was also about closed captioning. It was also about this watch instantly. But the difference is that instead of bringing this case out in Massachusetts, this individual brought the case out in California. And guess what happened under this Netflix requirement and under this nexus? Netflix and and nexus are very hard to say in the same sentence. (laughs) (laughs) But under the nexus requirement, there the court said, hey, Netflix has no nexus to an actual physical space. And that's what required by the Ninth Circuit precedent. And so we're so sorry, plaintiff, in this case, you cannot bring your case forward, which to me is just such a a, a stark example of the differences between the different circuits when we have two exactly same fact patterns and two exactly different court resolutions. Little disconcerting, right? (laughs) Disconcerting. Um, You know, as lawyers, I would say, you know, we all, we, for a place like Netflix where you could file anywhere, it's kind of confusing why a case would have been filed about this in California, given the state of that law, because Netflix, of course, applies, you know, is, is, um, uh, exists across the country. Um, I mean, the, a side note, the good thing about the Netflix case is that after that positive decision in Massachusetts, Netflix agreed to make, um, uh, to provide closed captioning on all of its streaming content. And so that other case ultimately didn't have a negative impact on the deaf community. But of course, it is a troubling case that that is out there. The only last kind of um, way that sometimes courts look at this, and this is like a little bit of a confusing one and a little bit technical, but sometimes what courts say is that when you look at what Title III applies to, it applies to services of a place of public accommodation, not just services in a place of public accommodation. And it's these, you know, the difference between the word of and the word in. Essentially, I think it, you know, it's it's somewhat similar to this nexus argument in that it's saying that if you have a place of public accommodation and they're using a website or a mobile app to provide their services, then you're covered by the ADA. But again, it has to still be this place of public accommodation. So a little bit of a nuance of the of the nexus argument. I mean, we see a little bit of an overlap there. That language is actually also used in the Robles case. And Rachel, earlier you touched on uh, Section 508 of the Rehabilitation Act. Can you quickly go through um, what that means for uh, website accessibility? Yeah, of course. So the Rehabilitation Act of course, is another anti-discrimination law that protects the rights of people with disabilities. And there's lots of different sections that make up the Rehab Act. So folks may be familiar with Section 504. It's a term we hear a lot. Um, People have, of course, 504 plans when they're in school and there's 504 coordinators. Well, 504 is a section of the Rehabilitation Act. And in many ways, it's just like the ADA. It provides anti-discrimination protections, Um, but it's more limited in that Section 504 applies only to entities that receive federal financial assistance. And so all of the principles we just talked about, about the ADA, would also apply under 504 if an entity received federal financial assistance. So that's Section 504. There's also another section, Clark, as you just mentioned, called Section 508. Um, That's another section of the Rehabilitation Act, and that section is specific about digital accessibility. Um, Now, that's even more narrow in scope because it only applies to federal agencies when they develop, procure, maintain, or use electronic information technology. 
So if we're looking at the federal government, they obviously do so many different types of programming and services. Um, the federal government's own information needs to be provided in an accessible way. And as I mentioned, Section 5, 5 there used to be something called 508 standards, which helped us define what it meant to have um, accessibility. And now that's essentially the same as WCAG 2.0. Great. Well, thank you again, Rachel. I know I really uh, enjoyed this and learned a lot, and I, I'm sure all of our listeners will do the same. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And to everyone listening, again, thank you so much. You can look up ACB at acb.org. You can shoot us a message at advocacy at acb.org. And as always, keep advocating. Thanks for listening to the ACB Advocacy Update. You can reach us by emailing advocacy at acb.org. The ACB Advocacy Update is a production of the American Council of the Blind in Alexandria, Virginia. To learn more about ACB, visit us online at www.acb.org.